Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Zikar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself? as did also his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time has coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshippers must worship in Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. 
Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, uh, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I've ever known. Would this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. I'm going to speak this morning from John chapter 4, so please have your Bibles open. And the heading is, They are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. When you fly in the Middle East, you'll notice that there's quite a few travel anomalies because Jordan has a treaty with Israel, but Lebanon most definitely does not, which means that Royal Jordanian Airlines, they can go straight over Israel, take the short route, but Middle East Airlines, they have to go the long way round. Well, back when Jesus walked through these same lands and when walking was the majority mode of travel, there was a similar kind of travel anomaly going on the Jewish people would not take the short route through Samaria. We have that phrase about going the extra mile, and it's normally thought of as like a, an expression of love. But for those Jewish people back then, going the extra mile around Samaria was not an expression of love, but of deep-seated hatred. Which means that verse 4 of chapter 4 of John should grab our attention. It says there, now Jesus had to go through Samaria. Well, no, as a Jew, he had to go round Samaria. But Jesus, of course, is being driven not by hatred, but by love. And it's that love that means that he has to go through Samaria. So verse 5 says, he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Well, this place is steeped in biblical history. It's a place that reminds us of God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a place that reminds us of God's faithful love throughout the centuries. But I don't know if the disciples, as they arrived in this village, were noticing that even. I expect they wondered why Jesus was taking them this way. I expect they thought he stopped because he was tired. And like me, their first instinct is to go and get food because I can't even think when I'm hungry. But Jesus chooses to sit by the well, not because he's tired, though I'm sure he was. It is Jesus's mission that is driving his decisions, not his circumstances. And his mission, he will tell us later in this chapter, is to do the will of the Father. And his Father is seeking worshippers. And this is going to take Jesus where others will not go. So while his disciples go looking for food, Jesus goes to sit by a well to seek the kind of worshipper that the Father is seeking. And the first characteristic of that worshipper is that worshipper will thirst for more than water. If you go back a chapter to chapter three of John's gospel, Jesus meets with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a well-educated Jewish religious man. 
And he came to see Jesus in the middle of the night, afraid of being seen. Well, now Jesus chooses to reveal himself to a socially unacceptable Samaritan woman in the middle of the day. Well, the contrast between the two could not be greater. And yet both these two opposite people need Jesus equally. And remarkably, Jesus is equally at ease with both of them. Both are confused by the, the cryptic way that Jesus speaks to them. And yet, interestingly, it is the Samaritan woman, the foreign outsider, who by the end of the conversation surpasses the Jewish religious leader. Look at verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. Jesus and this woman are alone, not just because the disciples have gone to find food, but because no one wants to go to the well at 12 in the middle of the day. So she's either coming at this time of the day, like Nicodemus came at night to not be seen. She's either coming to avoid the shame of being seen. Maybe she had a shameful past. But it is possible, as we'll see and learn a bit more about her later in this reading, that she might have been coming because this was the best time to meet men on her own. She may well have been looking for more than water, but that is certainly not what Jesus has in mind when he says to her, give me a drink. And for this Samaritan woman, the shock of that request is double. There are two big reasons why Jesus should not be talking to her. She is foreign and she is female. Verse nine, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Well, there's no doubt that Jesus is genuinely tired and thirsty, but he could have sorted his own water out and then he'd be in a much stronger position to come to this woman, not in need, but able to, to help her, to give to her. And that's always the temptation for us foreign missionaries working in poorer countries. We, we have the wealth, we think we have the expertise, so we, we feel we come from this position of strength and we're ready to give help and we like to feel needed. That does tend to be the direction of mission from the rich to the poor. But Jesus here puts himself in a position of need before this foreign woman so as to bridge that big religious and cultural divide between them. He's gonna use his very natural thirst for water to show her that she is thirsty for much more than water. Jesus does not need anything from her or from you and me, which means we can be sure that if he asks us for anything, it's not an opportunity for us to give, but rather an opportunity for us to receive. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So the woman said, you've nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Like Nicodemus, who was told by Jesus that he needed to be born again. And he wondered how he could climb back into his mother's womb. So also this Samaritan woman wonders how Jesus can offer her water when he clearly has no bucket. And I wonder if she's just having a little bit of a religious dig there as he says, are you greater than our father Jacob? 
This is our well, she says, and you don't even have a bucket. Jesus doesn't rise to that jibe, he could have replied, how dare you? But he wants to keep inviting her to look beyond race, to look beyond religion, to look beyond even that cool, enticing water at the bottom of that well. Jacob was considered great by the Samaritans because he dug a well and he met a physical need. And we do that, don't we? We value most the people who meet our physical needs. So Jesus says to her in verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Depending on how well she knew her Old Testament, she should have immediately been thinking of Ezekiel and, and his vision of that temple with the miraculous river of water flowing from it. But she was hot and she was thirsty and it was hard work getting water from the well. So I guess it was obvious that she would say to him in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep on coming here to draw water. It's not the theological imagery of what Jesus says that has grabbed her attention. She likes the idea of free, easy water. And I guess she's probably not even noticed that Jesus wants her not just to draw water, but for her to be a spring of water overflowing in blessing to others. And here is something that no one but Jesus can give us. We're surrounded by need. The need feels endless and, and we want to help, but we're so aware that our resources are so limited. And so we guard our precious resources, afraid that our own well will run dry, but not so with Jesus. Not only does he meet our real need, the real thirst we have, but his resources are not limited. And he doesn't just want to give us new life. He wants us to be a channel of that life for others. But then while this lady is still struggling to get her head round how a man with no bucket can give her endless water, Jesus wants to open her eyes to another characteristic of the worshipper that the Father is seeking, that they will desire more than marriage. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come back. Well, there's more than one way to understand why Jesus said, this point in the conversation would tell her to go get her husband. The first reason is obviously cultural. Jesus has broken a lot of cultural norms to sit here and chat with this woman alone. And he's done this because he is doing his father's work, seeking worshippers, seeking the lost. But now it's time to draw in her community. And that must, of course, start with her husband. The other suggested reason is that if this lady is to receive the gift of eternal life from Jesus, well, then she must first come clean about her sin. So this perplexing and maybe mind-bending conversation for this woman has suddenly just got very personal. And I guess it's starting to go in a direction that she would rather it did not go any further in. So, of course, she gives an answer that's true, but incomplete. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. What do you do when someone exposes you so completely? Well, I guess what many of us do, we either change the topic or we muddy the waters with religion. 
And this lady does both. But then actually maybe she's not being deliberately evasive as we can sometimes be. You see, in the same way that Jesus wanted to draw in her community to this conversation, she will immediately be thinking about what are the impacts of what Jesus is saying to her on her community's understanding of religion. Verse 19, sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Jesus has no problem with this seeming change of topic, this diverting, diverting tactic that she's used, because actually she's stumbled onto the main point. You see, till now, Jesus has been speaking in very short sentences with lots of questions, but you can tell he's happy with where the conversation's going because his sentences start to get longer. Verse 22, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers will worship in spirit and in truth. I think this is the key to the whole passage. I think this explains everything that Jesus has been saying and doing in this very culturally cryptic and unconventional conversation. The Father is seeking worshippers, and so is the Son. And whilst it sounds like a very exclusive, racially exclusive statement to say that salvation is from the Jews, remember that Jesus is the fulfillment of this statement. And what is he doing? He is from the Jewish people, and yet he is going where no one else will go, to invite a foreign woman to be one of the worshippers that the Father is seeking. Verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is Christ's most open declaration of who he is so far in John's gospel. This is the first of his great I am statements that reveal his deity. Just like God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush and said, I am that I am. Jesus says, that's me. I am the I am who met with Moses and delivered my people from slavery. And he chooses to reveal himself like this, first of all, to a foreign woman that his own people hated. And yet, even though he has arrived at his main point, I don't think we're there yet. And I don't think the disciples were there either. Verse 27, just then his disciples returned and they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked him, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? They're clearly disturbed to find Jesus talking with this woman. I guess they would like to ask her the perhaps accusing question, what do you want? And I guess they would like to uh, asked Jesus the slightly startled question, why are you talking with her? But whatever she was and whatever they assume her to be, she has changed after this conversation and she wants to tell people. So verse 28 says, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town. I want to spend just a minute on this seemingly passing detail in verse 28. Some, of course, say that the mention of her leaving this water jar was an authentic eyewitness detail. 
And that's, of course, true. Others suggest that the, the leaving the water jar shows how much she was in haste to share the good news that she'd found. And of course, that must also be true. But I wonder if there's more. Because there's only one other time in the whole of John's gospel where stone water jars are mentioned. In fact, there were six of them. Six of them at the wedding in Cana, just two chapters ago in chapter two. Now, John chooses to record only seven of all of Jesus's miracles, uh, the signs as he calls them. And yet at the end of the gospel, he says that if he were to have recorded all the miracles, there would not be enough space. So why did he only choose seven? Of course, there must have been some deliberate choice about which signs he chose and in which order if he was to choose only seven. Now, whilst I think that the changing of water into wine, the first of the signs, is a very entertaining and popular miracle, a good one to start your story with, surely John chooses this miracle for a better reason than that wonderful relief of a host who had his party rescued. Just before we get to chapter four and after the miracle in chapter two, I think John the Baptist gives us the answer in chapter three. He says this about Jesus. He says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. Jesus is the bridegroom who has come to this world to seek and save his bride, the church. That wedding in Cana was just a little glimpse of the great wedding banquet, which everyone is invited to in heaven. Now, you may remember that in the Old Testament, Moses found his wife at a well. Isaac's wife was found for him at a well. Jacob fell in love with his wife, Rachel, at a well. And so now Jesus, the bridegroom, comes to Jacob's well. But he does not find any pure virgin bride waiting for him there. She's been married five times. She's now with her sixth man. She meets Jesus at the sixth hour. There were six jars at the wedding in Cana waiting for a seventh jar to be perfect, to be complete. The seventh jar that the woman brought to the well and left there. And she's clearly not found what she's been looking for in the six men that she's given herself to in her life. But this seventh man she meets, Jesus, who's been so gracious and yet so searching in his questions, she thinks that in him she's come to the end of her searching. But of course, as we saw from the beginning, it was Jesus who was searching after her. This encounter at the well is just a wonderful picture of Jesus seeking us, his bride. But it's no perfect sanitized fairy tale picture of a prince and a princess. Oh yes, be assured, Jesus is the perfect prince, but we are no perfect princess bride. Instead, we are sinners that he seeks to save. Maybe we don't like that comparison with the Samaritan woman, perhaps like the Pharisee, we'd be quick to thank God that at least we're not as bad as that Samaritan woman Wow, six men. But if you think that, you will miss the joy that is hers and the joy that should be ours. She is a perfect picture of humanity, a humanity that looks everywhere but God for satisfaction. We are literally, before God, worthless, adulterous. And our God is so faithful, loving, and seeking after us. And until we see ourselves as wretched like her, 
we're not going to fully embrace Jesus Christ as our saviour bridegroom come to redeem us. So that's what I think verse 23 is the key to this whole passage. The father is seeking worshippers. And whilst we love to talk about seeking God, it's God who seeks us. And not just to rescue us from our sin. Too many of us Christians are far too easily satisfied with just that. I just want that get out of jail free card. I want my reserved seat at the wedding banquet in heaven. But God seeks worshippers. Worshippers who will thirst for more than water, who will desire more than marriage, who literally delight in him more than anything else this world has to offer. And that kind of worshipper will naturally be a witness and a missionary, just like that Samaritan woman, overflowing with the water of life. She didn't understand at the time when Jesus said that cryptic phrase to her about never thirsting and about becoming a spring of living water. But now she's exactly the fulfillment of that. Off she goes to the village without a jar of water and yet overflowing with water, water of life. Verse 28, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. I'm sure that many, most of us, find being a witness or a missionary difficult and intimidating. But I would say the key is worship. Delight yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Desire him more than anything else. Don't let the marriage love between you and him grow stale, grow cold. And you can be a spring of living water overflowing to others. I think we invite this world to thirst for more than water and to desire more than marriage when that is the kind of worshippers we are. And it is clear to all who watch that we worship God and we desire him more than anything else this world has to offer. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we long to see ourselves as we are, as that Samaritan woman Help us to stop pretending. Help us to rejoice that even in our ugly sin, you sought us out. You desire us to be yours. You desire us to be worshippers. And we long to be the kind of worshippers who literally overflow with water. That our love for you would make us clear, bold witnesses going out to whoever will listen and accept this invitation. For we ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.